Good morning. This is obviously a little bit different Easter Sunday morning than many of us have experienced. Obviously, it would be great to be together in person, but yet God has still made a way for us to gather in His name. And so, today, as children and adults alike, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection, for many, actually seems to be far-fetched. Even for those who profess faith in Christ, there can still be doubts sometimes around the resurrection. However, this isn't a surprise to Christ. Christ isn't surprised by those doubts. In fact, he knew those doubts would arise. And his desire is for us to have confidence in his resurrection. You see, it is through his resurrection that we have the hope and power of his salvation. So this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. And as we go through these scriptures, what I want us to do is to look at a contrast here between the way the disciples are responding to the resurrection and the way that Jesus desires that they respond. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 36. It says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray as we move into this passage this morning. Lord, thank you that we can come to you knowing that you are alive, that you are not dead. Thank you for your death on the cross, and thank you for your resurrection. Father, this morning there may be in some of us doubts that have arisen around your resurrection. I pray that eyes would be open to your truth this morning. For others, I pray that we would be encouraged in your resurrection. That, Lord, the events around us, the circumstances that we are experiencing right now and shelter in place, I pray that those things would not be a distraction from us worshiping you this morning. 
Lord, may you encourage our hearts this morning. May you convict our hearts this morning. And Father, may we experience the peace of the hope of your salvation as we rejoice over the fact that you are truly a risen King. Father, I pray that we would put the burdens that we are bearing right now at your feet. Father, if there's sin that we need to put at your feet, we would do that. That we would confess that to you. If there's heaviness of heart, that we would confess that to you. And I pray that you would give us a focus on your word this morning and that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts. May your word come forth in power. May it be your words and your will that is done this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. If you haven't had a chance to grab the notes, the notes for the sermon are on the website and would encourage you to go back and to grab those and use those if you find them to be a benefit for you. At the heart of our passage this morning is the fact that confidence in Christ's resurrection comes from His presence and understanding of God's Word for the purpose of salvation. Confidence in Christ's resurrection comes from His presence and understanding of God's Word for the purpose of salvation. What Jesus is desiring for His disciples, but then what He's desiring for each of us is that we might have confidence in the resurrection. Verse 36 begins, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, what exactly were these things that the disciples were discussing when Jesus appears in their midst? Well, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, we're told just earlier in this chapter of Luke 24 that Jesus joins two men as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. And after Breaking bread with them, we're told in verse 31 that their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 33 through 35 continues, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You see, as the disciples are discussing what has been shared with them about the resurrection of Jesus, he appears in their presence and greets them. Now, if you can think about that for a moment, Jesus in bodily form, and we're told that that now as he has risen, he is glorified, meaning he's in his glorified body. He has a new body. And we don't fully understand how that works, but what we know from from 1 Corinthians 15 is that the perishable, perishable body becomes imperishable. And so Jesus appears in their midst. Now look what the disciples' response is. I think it would be much certainly like mine. It says, He appears in their presence and greets them. And verse 37 tells us that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Yeah. I'd be startled and frightened and thought I saw a spirit too. I think sometimes in this, we can disconnect ourselves from the disciples and go, well, they've been told this, and we lose sight of the fact that if we were in that situation in our own humanity and flesh, we would probably be thinking the same thing. 
we would probably be frightened. I don't know about you guys, but in our house, one of the things that seems to, to be fun for specifically for my children is to try to scare each other and us. And, and one of the things you'll find with me is I don't particularly like to be scared. I mean, I'm not sure that a lot of people do, but I don't. And, and, and so I know that my first reaction when I get scared is often to get angry. I can imagine the disciples were in that same boat, like, what in the world? The disciples are startled. They're frightened. I remember years ago, as a, as a young boy walking into some model homes, my parents were looking at a house, and as we were going through this house, I had found a way to, you know, pest my sister as a, as a younger brother, which was the, the thing to do. And so I would run into these model homes before they got in there, and I'd hide in a spot, and I would pop out, and I would, would scare her. Well, unbeknownst to me, my sister decided to do the same thing to me. And so we went into this home, and what she didn't realize was that as we were walking into the house, my mom and my dad and myself... My sister already positioned in the house to, to scare me that another younger couple, a woman who was pregnant and her husband, came walking in in front of us. And so as we walked into the kitchen, what we hear is this kind of blood-curdling scream and then a big thump. And this poor woman and man, as my sister popped out from behind the corner, shot into the other room, fell, falling to the floor. Now, I'll tell you what. For me, being startled in that way by being surprised by somebody you're not expecting, I might respond the same way. The disciples are responding. They're surprised. They're startled. They're frightened. They're not sure what's happening. And so Jesus asked them in this. He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see, the disciples weren't experiencing the peace of Christ, but rather they were marred by doubt. That's why they were discussing these things. Even though Jesus had told them that, that he was going to rise again, they still didn't understand. And that lack of understanding was leading to doubt, and that doubt was producing fear and confusion. Now notice Jesus' response here. Jesus' response in this moment is not one of forceful rebuke. He doesn't just look at them and correct them and tell them that the way that they've been processing the resurrection is wrong. But rather, Jesus lovingly directs them to the truth. I'd ask you the same question this morning. When you're doubting, do you go to the truth? When you're with someone who's doubting, do you direct them to the truth? Is it a personal offense that they don't believe with the same level of faith that you believe? You see, 
Jesus lovingly directs them to the truth. And so this morning, if you're wrestling with doubt, I want to direct you to the truth this morning. For those of you who may know others that are doubting, I want to direct you to Jesus' response to those who are wrestling with doubt. You see, in both cases, it's the truth. The truth is what brings confidence amidst doubt. And so what we see here are two truths that are designed to give us a confident peace in the resurrection of Christ. No longer are we startled, no longer are we afraid, but that we are being able to see clearly that yes, Jesus did rise again. That it was not some myth, it was not some fairy tale, but that he actually rose again. So the first truth deals with bodily evidence. Bodily evidence. Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a spirit, he was raised in body. Verses 39 through 44, or excuse me, through 43 says this, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while he still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. You see, Jesus was showing that his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He wasn't a spirit, but rather was in body. He lets them see his hands and his feet. If you recall that when Jesus went to the cross, the foundation of being crucified, or at least in terms of the, the thing that brought about death, was that as they were on the cross, their hands were spread apart with nails driven through them. Their feet had nails that went through them as well. And as their body began to sag on that cross, the only way to not be hung and to suffocate, to allow suffocation to occur, and the collapsing of the chest was to then stand up on those feet which had nails that were driven through them. Jesus is showing them the marks. But more than that, he's showing them that he, he is the Messiah. That he has risen in body. That this was not some sort of spirit that had risen, but rather it was Jesus who had risen. Now notice this, even after the disciples are able to see and touch Jesus, amazingly, it says in verse 41, they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling. Now that's an interesting statement. The truth is, is that they were so enamored with what was taking place that they actually believed it too good to be true. So if you recall, last week when we looked at Luke 22, the disciples were in the garden and Jesus had instructed them to pray so that they wouldn't enter into temptation. We're told later that they were praying for sorrow, meaning 
that, or excuse me, they were sleeping for sorrow, meaning that in their sorrow, they had actually walked in disobedience. They lacked faith to actually believe that prayer was what was going to, they need to strengthen them. Today, what we see in Luke 24 is that their disbelief is not a result of sorrow, but it actually is a result of joy. The truth is this. The disciples were excited, but yet what they believed was that they believed it was too good to be true. And so they were actually allowing their joy to affect their faith. And they weren't considering the truth of Christ in their hearts. They were just focused on the act. I know in my own life, I will hear of God's miraculous work. And, and we live in a culture that values reason, and reason's a good thing. But we serve a God who is not bound by reason, or at least man's reason. We serve a God who is all-powerful, who can do all things. And I believe there are times often that God works. He does miraculous work. And we dismiss them away. We spend more time trying to figure out how it happened rather than rejoicing in the fact that it did happen. I know there have been times in my own life where after being in ministry this long and serving Christ and being a follower of Christ, I've seen God do miracles. And yet, I know there are times in my own spirit that I'm afraid to share those things because people will think it to be weird or not possible or an exaggeration. And the truth is, is that I need to not care about that. It shouldn't be a distraction from our faith. We should expect that God does the impossible. He did the impossible with you and I. You see, God took us, those, those who had rebelled against Him. All humanity has rebelled against God. And God has allowed us to have salvation for those who will repent and believe on Him. That's a miracle. A miracle is the basis of His salvation. And the disciples here have, are focusing on how it could have occurred, rather on the fact that it did occur. And they're not considering their heart and, and seeing it and standing in amazement of who God is, but rather they're standing in amazement of the act. Do you ever find yourself standing in amazement of the act rather than worshiping the God who brought it about? I would encourage you this morning to allow yourself to be amazed by what God does. And rather than trying to always figure it out, 
to simply rejoice. See, it's important to note that even though doubt still existed, the disciples themselves didn't run away. But rather, Jesus requests for food, and in his request, Jesus sits with them and eats. The disciples remained in his presence. They they drew near to Christ, not away from him. For those that are struggling with doubts, I would encourage you to, to follow the disciples in this. If you're doubting the truth of God, if you're doubting the resurrection, the picture we have is of a people who actually draw nearer to God, not farther away. R.C. Sproul points out that when we say we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we are not proclaiming the eternal significance of an idea. Nor are we saying that Jesus lives on in somebody's memory or that his reappearances were simply visionary experiences. The confession of the church of Christ for 2,000 years has been and must continue to be an unequivocal conviction of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything less is a complete variance with the testimony of the New Testament. The fact is that Jesus rose in body. It was truly him. We're told that there were witnesses to this, and the disciples were one set of witnesses who witnessed the resurrected Christ. Now, with the doubt still persisting, Jesus reminds them then in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then catch this. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You see, all of which was written about the Messiah in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ. However, apart from Christ, we can't understand his truth. The point is that he's making here is whether you are five years old, whether you're eight years old, whether you're 13 years old, whether you're 17 years old, whether you're 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, whether you're 75, 85, 95, or even 105. The only way that you can understand the truth of Christ is by Christ opening your eyes. Why? Because he is making it clear that this is his salvation, that our salvation is not based upon merit or intelligence, but it's based upon him. He is the one that does the work. He is the one that completes the work. He is the one who three days earlier on the cross said, it is finished. 1 John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So check this out. Jesus goes to the cross. He rises again. He fulfills all of the prophecy 
And then he's the one who gives understanding. He's the one that gives understanding. When you understand the cross, when you understand the work of the cross, that is a gift from God that he has given you. He has opened your eyes. When we treat that gift with carelessness, when our eyes have been opened to the truth and we choose to remain in sin, we are disregarding the God of our salvation. The disciples were drawing near, not away. And yet Jesus is the one that opened their eyes. Jesus is the one who opens your eyes. Jesus is the one who opens my eyes. And that is the beauty of God's grace, is that he does it all. He does all of it. Our call is to respond. Charles Spurgeon makes the point, many can bring the scripture to the mind, but the Lord alone can prepare the mind to receive the scriptures. There are many who have read scripture, but the scriptures have not been illuminated for them through Christ. Children, I would encourage you this morning to not think that you've heard a story multiple times. I remember that was a temptation for me, was how many times do I have to hear this story? How many times do I have to hear about Jesus walking on the water? I get that Jesus walked on the water. I would encourage you to rejoice in that Jesus allowed Peter to walk on the water. Adults, I would encourage you to do the same. You see, it's easy for us to become apathetic towards the truth of Christ, to feel like we've heard it all before, and yet each time God is opening our eyes to the truth, and when we understand that truth, we need to rejoice that it is God who gave us sight It is God who gave us understanding. It is God who gave us salvation and life. The second truth, then, is biblical evidence. Biblical evidence. The second truth that brings confidence or brings peace in the resurrection is biblical evidence. We see in verse 46, it says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And so the first aspect of that biblical evidence is the death of Christ. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 actually tells of Christ's coming. The Messiah to redeem God's people. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Messiah was going to have to be crushed for the iniquities or the sin of people. Jesus makes atonement for our sin. This picture of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 is a picture of Jesus. You see, God is a loving and just and righteous God, and in his righteousness and justice, God demands the consequence for our sin. The consequence of that sin is death. And apart from Christ, we have no hope. The rightful penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus takes our rightful punishment, our rightful penalty of death upon himself. In fact, Jesus goes as the perfect and holy sacrifice and all of mankind's sin are placed upon him. The full wrath of God being availed against him. And Jesus takes our penalty and our punishment and atones for our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus removes the barrier separating God and man, which was sin, and frees us to be at peace with him through the cross. What's the second aspect of this, this biblical evidence? Well, it says in verse 30, excuse me, verse 46, and on the third day, rise from the dead. So you have the death, which is required because of our sin and mankind's sin. And then we have this resurrection. Hosea 6, 1 through 2 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Jesus died, and then he rose, which we celebrate today. The truth of the resurrection is what we celebrate today. And so while he atoned for our sins on the cross, through the resurrection, he defeats the power of death. No longer are we subject to death. No longer are we slave to the power of sin, but now we can be slave to righteousness because life has overcome death. You see, in Romans 6, 9 through 10, it says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, the resurrection power grants and enables victory over the power of sin. Resurrection power grants and enables victory over the power of sin because of Christ's resurrection. We no longer have to be dominated by our sin. But rather, we can have new life in Christ. Charles Henriksen puts it this way, the resurrection of the Christ is essential to God's plan. It is the dawning of the new creation where life now has the upper hand. And dear friends, this resurrection is for you. Christ has won it for you. You see, you don't understand the scriptures until you see your place in it. By trusting in Jesus, you will share in his resurrection victory. The resurrection of Christ is for us. You see, the death was for us. It was an atonement of sin. It took our penalty. And the resurrection was to show that that penalty, that that atonement, that sacrifice that Jesus offered up as the perfect lamb, the one without sin, was actually fully sufficient to meet God's to meet God's wrath the sacrifice that was offered up the penalty that was paid when Christ rises again we are assured that that sacrifice was fully sufficient for our redemption that it was acceptable and pleasing to God that it was a Acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Where do you see yourself in this story? Do you see your sin? Do you see the need for resurrection power, power over sin? Have you come to a place where Truthfully, being obedient to the things that God has placed on you, whether that's being obedient to the boss you work at, serve at work, or whether that's the authority over you, or whether that's the teacher you have in your class, which right now might be your mom and dad, do you see that you have a natural disposition towards sin? And yet, in Christ, we now have Christ's disposition towards righteousness. That yes, we still battle with the flesh, but we have his power in overcoming sin in each aspect of our life. Why? Because sin has already been defeated. So the third then aspect of the biblical evidence is that salvation is proclaimed to all nations. In verse 47, it says, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. When Jesus came, his death and resurrection was not for a specific people group. It was for all nations. 
Now, repentance is the turning of our heart or mind away from the ourselves and towards God, away from sin and towards God. It's a shifting of direction. It's a turning around and coming back towards Christ. That's repentance. You see, Christ opens our mind, and so therefore, we must change our mind. When Christ opens our eyes to see the truth, what he's calling us to do is to turn. And what he's doing is empowering us to turn as well. And so in Acts 3.19, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. You see, when we repent and turn, we've got to turn towards someone. And what he's asking us to do is to repent and turn towards him in faith, in belief. You see, the way that we apply God's salvation the way that we apply the work of Jesus to our life is through repentance and belief, through repentance and faith. And when we have faith in Christ that his sacrifice was enough for us that defeats our sin and that he rose again defeating the power of death, Jesus has granted us forgiveness of sins. You see, Our salvation is no longer we condemned by our sin, but Jesus took that condemnation on the cross, and now we are free in Christ. That's the resurrection. We are free in Christ because of the resurrection. So salvation comes when we repent and believe on Jesus. That salvation is not just offered the person that has their hair parted down the middle. Not just offered to the 16-year-old in youth group, the five-year-old at school, the 100-year-old person in an assisted living facility. It's not just offered to Jews. It's not just offered to to Gentiles. It is offered to all who repent and believe. To all who believe on Jesus for their salvation. Isaiah 49.6 says this. It, It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The salvation of Christ is sufficient for all who believe. God's original purpose, his intent, was that his message, this hope, his hope would go out to all the world. In Galatians 3, 13 through 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus' hope, the resurrection of Christ, 
but Christ first being placed on the cross and then being raised again, the salvation that came through that was not just to be for one people group, but it was to be for all who believe on him. If you've never responded to the gospel of Christ, to this message, know that Christ, Christ desires that you repent and believe on him. If you have repented and believed on Jesus, are you living in that power? Are you sharing this message that God has, has, has given you a messenger or made you a messenger? This gospel that's supposed to go out of repentance and forgiveness of sin. Are you carrying that? Are you taking that out? Are you proclaiming that message? Because the fact that Jesus did this work so that all nations might receive his salvation, are you bringing his truth to all nations? Who has God put on your mind to pray for, for the opportunity to share your faith? What is God calling you to step out to right now to bring his gospel to the world? What is it that motivates the missionaries that we have, that we support here as Redemption Hill Church? What motivates them to go into areas where their lives are in danger? I would encourage you to be praying for Rocky and Sylvia. They've been in Venezuela. Many of you know that. But three days ago, they left quickly. We don't even know all the circumstances for it. But we know that they were, had to be, be taken out of the country for their own safety. What makes them go into that area? Meryl Nesher has come home from Senegal right now. And I know that as she shared that there is a desire to, to be back with the Senegalese. And her mission organization has brought her home just in this period of time. But what makes people go into the farthest reach of the nations to share the gospel? It is this message. And it is the fact that God did not intend for us to hold it, but he intended for us to give it. When we have good news, we celebrate like crazy, don't we? We want everybody to know. I mean, go on Facebook for a minute and you see gender reveals all the time, right? I mean, for a guy that is married to a, a person that enjoys hosting and hospitable, but for a guy who's not naturally hospitable, like I see these things and I'm going, what are people doing? But you know what they're doing? They're celebrating good news. They're sharing their good news with others. That's the way we're to be as followers of Christ. And it is in the resurrection that we have power. It is in the resurrection that we are sharing with people that they have forgiveness of sins upon their repentance and belief in Christ. So what is the gift that's really given then through Christ's resurrection? Well, we see this here in verses 48 through 49. And it says, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, they're given both life and purpose in his power. You see, the disciples were witnesses of these things. 
They're given life through the death and resurrection of Jesus to which they were witnesses. But now they've been given purpose. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 15, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you repent and believe on Jesus, you are granted the Holy Spirit, the promised one that is spoken of here in Luke 24, 49. The Holy Spirit is the one who secures, who is the guarantee of your salvation. It's new life in Christ. It's eternal life in Christ. And the Holy Spirit bears testimony and seals your faith. Seals your faith as the guarantee of your inheritance. But secondly, you're given purpose. You're given purpose. They're told here, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He had just gotten done telling him, You are my witnesses. You're the one that are going to have to go out and take this message to the world. But no, it's in power. You see, because of the resurrection, we have life and purpose in his power. We have life and purpose in his power. What an awesome thing. You ever wonder what God wants you to be doing? Well, it begins by being faithful to him wherever you're at. You have purpose. And your purpose is to be a witness for Christ. A witness of the message of his death and resurrection and the saving work that comes through repentance and faith. John 16, 7 through 15 tells us this about the Holy Spirit. And he says this. He says, starting in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for the will, excuse me, he will, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is the one who's doing the work. When you go out to share your faith, it is the Spirit who is convicting hearts. It is the Spirit who is working in the lives of others. It is the Spirit who is guiding you. The gift that we have through the resurrection is life and purpose and power in His power. I want to leave us this morning with these words from Alistair Begg. My hope is that as we look at this together, 
that we don't allow doubt to reign, but that we draw near, that we seek Christ and his understanding, allowing him to open our eyes to his truth. And we rest in the peace of confidence of his salvation. You see, this is what Alistair Begg says. He says, think through what will happen if Satan can manage to get you obsessed with your doubts. You'll start becoming introverted as you become preoccupied with your doubts. You'll look inwards at yourself and your state of mind, and you will stop looking outwards, away from yourself, and toward the promises of God, confirmed and steeled through the death and resurrection of Christ. The more you worry about your doubts, the less you will look to God. Gradually, those vital links with the life-giving grace of God will wither and your spiritual life will wither and shrivel. Doubt will become unbelief because you allowed it to feed your doubts because you allowed it to. Feed your doubts and your faith will starve, but feed your faith and your doubts will starve. Doubt initially becomes a problem and finally becomes unbelief if and only if you allow it. May that be our prayer this morning, that we walk in the bold confidence of Christ's resurrection, knowing that he has granted life and purpose in his power through it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the resurrection. Thanks for the wonderful message of your glory. Thanks, Lord, for rising again, giving us a victory, not only over sin, but over death. Father, may we just rejoice in the goodness of your mercy and the goodness of your grace, and may we go forth in your power today, one, submitting and responding to your gospel, and two, going in the power of your resurrection and sharing the gospel. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.